Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Last week marked 32 years since the 1990 Strangeways prison riot took place, the longest prison uprising in British history. The month of disruption started as a protest against poor conditions in Strangeways and led to the authorities losing control of Manchester's Victorian prison compound. On April 1, 1990, the Strangeways riots brought Greater Manchester to a standstill. Hundreds of prisoners surrendered following the first couple days of disorder, but some protesters continued to stage a rooftop occupation at the Southall Street Jail for the next 25 days. The uprisings claimed the life of one inmate and one prison officer, and saw a total of 147 staff and 47 prisoners injured. The uprising sparked similar protests in prisons across the nation, It also started a conversation about the enduring problems in the British prison system. In mid-January, the Cottonport Monofill Tire Processing Plant and Landfill caught fire, blowing smoke and toxic fumes into Louisiana's Raymond Laborde Correctional Center, the nearby prison. Now, a report from The Intercept and prisoners' testimonies reveal a pattern of deliberate procrastination by both the state's Department of Public Safety and Corrections and the Department of Environmental Quality. Starting in 2013 and well into last December, the DEQ repeatedly issued compliance orders and documented environmental violations at the plant. The company declared bankruptcy seven years ago. The fire marshal described dangerous conditions, including hydraulic fuel spilled onto the ground in 100,000 tires piled as high as 50 feet in areas and 100 yards wide. The area that burned did not have the proper spacing to provide fire breaks. On January 16th, these piles caught fire and didn't stop burning for 11 days. The DEQ's declaration of emergency states that, quote, the smoke generated by the fire was so significant that visibility was greatly impaired near the vicinity of the site, end quote. People inside the prison covered vents with cardboard to try to keep out the smoke. Prisoner Sean Watts described that, quote, it looked like the world was coming to an end. The prison was in the midst of a COVID-19 outbreak with 307 people testing positive, but guards lined up all the prisoners together regardless of their COVID status outside in the smoke. Many described respiratory problems, migraines, and headaches for days before being evacuated but the 1,500 prisoners exposed to the fumes were denied timely and robust health checks. The evacuees were not allowed to see medical staff until well after their return to the board. Prisoner Rondell Delaney recalled that, quote, everyone was trying to see the nurse. They said, it's too many people. Welcome to the 300th episode of KiteLine. Over the upcoming weeks, we'll be sharing some of our favorite moments from our archive of shows but we encourage you to go to our website, kitelineradio.org, to browse the other 299 episodes and find some favorites of your own. 
On our end, we'll be sharing some moments that the folks on the Kite Line team have found memorable, moving, and informative. We'd also like to thank our hometown radio station, WFHB, for all their support over these 300 episodes. Kite Line's entirely volunteer-based, and the folks at WFHB helped us expand into a show that's aired across the U.S. We remain committed to amplifying the voices of people affected by incarceration and invite you to keep joining us. But this week, we still have some brand new content. We share with you a conversation between Jacques Huerta from Focus Initiatives and Baye Sylvester. They talk about Sylvester's decades-long time in prison and about the childhood events that helped lead him there. They talk about how the prison system often bargains with people facing intimidating sentences, getting them to plead more serious charges or charges they didn't commit. Here they are. Thank everyone so much for attending and showing up today. Uh, my name is Justin Huerta. They call me Jock. Uh, I'm one of the directors of Focus Initiatives. And um, today on the uh, Prisoners Speaks Out series, we have Mr. Baye Sylvester, you know. And uh, he served, uh, like myself, I've served 14 years off and on in a penitentiary prison system um, in Indiana mostly, but not only in Indiana. I've been locked up in uh, New Jersey for a short period of time and Louisiana for a short period of time. So um, I've got the uh, national experience, you know, if you will. And uh, Mr. Baye, how long have you, where have you been incarcerated before? I spent 26 and a half years. 26 and a half. In the uh, Indiana Department of Correction. Um, as a result of some classical things, you know, the, the, the regular, the, the prison yard to the, the school yard to the prison yard jargon that's used now, um, when I look back on it, I was, I was greased up and, and primed for that. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up on the west side of Chicago, and when my parents' marriage fell apart, I was just entering high school, and I was transported over here to Indiana. And as much as it was a cultural shock for me, it was also an opportunity for the skills I had learned on the streets in Chicago to be, you know, acted out at home. Uh, I was sentenced to prison at the age of 17. Well, I was arrested when I was 17, turned 18 in jail. And I spent 26 and a half years in the Indiana Department of Correction consecutively. Um, usually when someone hear about someone spending that kind of time, consecutive years in prison, the first thing they, they was to their mind, well, who did this person kill? Who did they rape or molest or something of that their nature? I can honestly tell you all, and this is all check a public record, I've never committed a crime of that nature. I went to prison for armed robbery, for armed robbery, and because I knew a little bit about the law and I recognized that um, I was being overcharged. I challenged them, you know, I wouldn't take pleas and so on and so forth. And so they said, okay, we'll make an example out of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was sentenced to um, 92 years at the age of 18. And uh, yeah, I spent 26 years. Strictly for armed robbery. You were sentenced robbery. to 92 years. 92 years. Ooh, boy. Yeah. But actually, that's something that they say in the courtrooms. They'll tell you directly that if you don't accept this plea, which is a smaller amount of usually a significant amount of time, they tell you directly, if you don't take this plea 
and you cost the state money to fight for your life and you have to make us have to pay for this, then we're going to seek the maximum sentence to try to intimidate and also to uh, instill fear in people. Uh, I've seen people who didn't even commit what they've been charged with feel compelled to take a sentence or take a case, uh, uh, get convicted for a case that they really didn't directly do or didn't have direct participation in. So, you know, that's, that's a, that's a big fear tactic that they uh, pull off a lot. Definitely. You know, you dead on point. And for the most part, especially with those individuals from the inner city. And when you think about the socioeconomic um, background of those, most of these individuals, whether it's Monroe County Jail, um, Marion County Jail, St. Joe County Jail, or, or the like, what you find is the majority of these individuals come from, from broken homes. They come from um, traumatized situations. Mm -hmm. And so because the school system and, and so on and so forth either don't care or don't know, you know, and I question that, then they get just moved around. They get moved around. They have disciplinary problems, and parents are encouraged to, you know, let us pump your child up with some medication. And if they resist that, then they're told, well, look, you can't advocate for your child. And so for me, my situation was that I was very, very, very much affected by my parents' dissolution of their marriage. And the, the primary reason for that, and I understood at the time that there was difficulties and things, and um, but I encountered my father on the street with another family, and he refused to acknowledge me, you know, and that was a very traumatic thing for me. And the seeds of discontent had already been sown because um, my heroes on the streets of Chicago was my older brothers. You know, and their cohorts, and quite naturally, that was street organizations. And so, um, if if I can yeah. interrupt one, because um, you spoke about your father. Yeah. What type of household did you come up in, directly? I came up in a two-parent household. My, I, I was raised by both my parents until the age of thirteen, I believe it was. Yeah, and but during that time, you know, I was. My mother was very active and present, mm -hmm. very encouraging in terms of education and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. My father worked real hard to ensure that we had what we needed in mm -hmm. terms of sustenance and things. But my father was absent quite a few nights. My father was known as a gambler in the street, a womanizer and so on and so forth. Okay. Now. I come of age um, on the air, on the end of the Black Power movement. I was very, I can remember very vividly, you know, the, the murder of Dr. Martin Luther King because he had been shot, and then the next day we went to school because he hadn't died yet, and myself and some other cohorts of mine, we, you know, we let, you didn't have to stay on school grounds back then, you know, nothing like that, and so we were out doing what we do in the neighborhood going to the fry shop and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And on the way back, uh, we were a little late getting back and we can see some cars on fire. And when we got to the school, my, um, my, my teacher, Mr. Geronic, he was trying to get us together and protect us. He's a tall, lanky white guy, could whistle any song, all kinds of songs, you know? <laughs> but um, the, the guys in the neighborhood that knew me, they knew my, my family, knew my brother, and they said, no, you coming with us. 
you know, and I didn't understand everything that was going on, but I remember the um, the National Guard coming in later that evening, the shots, and my brothers being going to jail and stuff in the burnings. It wow. was very vivid. And when I saw the Rodney King riot, and I'm sure you all know that thing that went across the world when they had that, they snatched that guy out, the, out that truck and they beat that innocent man because they was caught up in the, in the, in the you know, tyranny of the moment. I witnessed a scene like that at eight years old in Chicago. It was an Illinois Bell um, employee, though. Okay. that came through. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. And all that hostility, all that anger right. erupted. And, and that individual you talk about took some of the brunt of that, of that hostility and frustration that people felt in the community. Yeah. And you know what was ironic about that and what's so political? about instances like that is is that that type of frustration, that misguided frustration takes place behind closed doors in many homes and stuff quite often. You know, and when if something happened at the Columbine or some other school, it don't have to be on the magnitude of those their levels, but you hear about what well, counselors are available for the children and this and that there. But in the hood, in, in these neighborhoods, in these ghetto colonies, you don't have that. You witness somebody getting their brains, brains blowed out, or you run up on in the hallway and you find somebody, some, a schoolmate of yours who's been violated, a female, you know, and there is no, who do you talk to? Mm-hmm. You know, you're told to get over, deal with that stuff. And so if you, when you're faced with dilemmas like that and then you're progressing through school, all that suppressed hostility, all that misguided frustration, mm-hmm. you know, and then you have to take into account in, in the hood and stuff and in these oppressed, I don't care where you can be in a trailer park, you know, when you have folks at a, a naive age trying to figure out stuff that adults haven't even figured out and they come to conclusions right. at the age of 11 and 12 years old and they start operating off of those their, uh, conclusions that they came up with, now they don't have no life experience. Right. The sharpest youngster you run into at 16 and 17, he may be much more uh, um, accustomed or more wordy or comprehensive than his, his, his peers, but he's still only, it's only what, four, five years removed from dad, what that mean? Do right. this go together or whatever? Right. And so we have to be mindful of that. So when they subject us, well, I got waved over when I was 15 years old, okay? To a dope court. To a dope court at 15. At 15 years old, I got ra- uh, waved over. I got waved over and had a federal case and I had state cases as well. The, mm-hmm. the federal cases were dismissed because the person had illegally removed the serial numbers on the guns that was, that was you know, stolen. But I was waved over to a dope court at 15 years old. I stayed in jail for like 13 months, no, nine months. And I, my mother somehow miraculously was able to make bond after I kept telling the judge, hey, look, you know, lower my bond. She lowered my bond. I got out. You know, that was, um, that time in jail then was was very uh, problematic. Mm -hmm. It had a lot to do with my subsequent years because I went to the hole, it seemed like, every other week. You know, for the police and shut up, Sylvester, quit asking questions, don't do this and don't do that, you know? Mm-hmm. And so uh, that is that, and, and that was advocating for myself because mm-hmm. I was being isolated with a couple other juveniles because we were juveniles, but we mm-hmm. had 
we was in the adult jail. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's part of my story. So when, at, at the age of 17, when I was arrested and being sent to prison, you know, I knew that it didn't feel like justice. Mm-hmm. Now I said, yeah, I was convicted of armed robbery. Now someone got shot in this robbery, mm-hmm. you know. And, um, but the, 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 the fact of coming, coming to me and trying to bargain in bad faith, Mm-hmm. That's what they do. They bargain in bad faith. They know that they've overcharged you. They know that due process does not allow for duplicitous charges for the same underlying offense. Mm-hmm. They know that. Mm-hmm. Your lawyer know that, mm-hmm. but they think you don't know that. Right. You know, and so when I said no, 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 and I went to trial, that's what happened. Right. You know, that's what happened. And, right. you know, at the time when I was sent to the state prison in, in 1978, mm-hmm. they didn't at that time, you were supposed to be 26 years old to go to the Indiana State Prison. Mm-hmm. You know, and I got there, I was 18 years old, and it may have been, what, 15 of us there. Okay, before we go into the uh, penitentiary experience yeah. as a young man at that time, uh, reflecting back to what you said about being uh, 15 mm-hmm. and having your first experiences with the system, is that a right around the No. No? No. I... Before then? Oh, I was incarcerated at 11. At 11? Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. okay, okay. So at 13, your father, he removed himself from the picture, as yeah. you say. Yeah, Okay, so it started like a little bit before then, your run-in with author- uh, authority, authority figures. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, and got worse after he departed? Yeah, it did, because, yeah. you know, the... Um, I don't know how other people, you know, but at that age, I was ill prepared to deal with rejection, rejection on, on that level, you know, and uh, I was real comfortable with um, hostility and pain, you right. know, and, and acting out on it. Right. You know, I was very comfortable with that. And right. so that was the path that I that I took, right. you know, and, and because there was no one there. My mother, you know, my, my mother, my father was the only man my mother ever knew, right. you know, until they they. You know, he married her when she was, what, 16, 17 years old, mm-hmm. you know, and brought her up from Alabama. Right. And so she was ill-prepared. You know, she in, in Chicago, she knew about working and, you know, cleaning people's houses and stuff. That's what they did back in those days if they couldn't mm-hmm. get nothing else. Yeah, but mm-hmm. Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, mm-hmm. the first time I ever ate a free breakfast, it was by the Black Panther Party, Okay. Mm-hmm. The first time I got a sickle cell anemia test or whatever, it was by them, okay? So I, I understood what was going on, not wholly. I knew that there was a, some, 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 some struggle going on. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a young man. You know, I'm living in, a, in an era in which everything is black and white, mm-hmm. you know? And so, and I hear these stories and, you know, and stuff, and because I'm, I'm sitting around and I'm very attentive. You know, very attentive. I'm listening and I'm watching my brothers. I see the posters and I see the the, the, the going ons, the, right. the you know the arm of the spirit, the newspaper. You know, the right. point of the spirit that is and those things. And so it was it was there. Definitely, it was there. Mm-hmm. I got you. Okay, uh, so your father had left, and now you're getting older. Mm-hmm. And that period of his absence before you ran into him. You said with mm-hmm. his new family, mm-hmm. and uh, what was that experience like? The interim yeah. before then. Uh, the the interim before then, and then the experience itself of seeing him and thereafter. 
the interim, be, be, when my parents first separated in, in my father's absence, it was a struggle. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a struggle. You know, my mother had to, to, um, to, to, um, to deal, she had, we had six of us, you know, six of us. And my brothers, they were, getting, they were older now, and so they were moving out, but she still had the other four. It got to the point where my sisters had to be sent down to my grandmother in Alabama. You know, because she just couldn't, you know, handle right. everybody. So that left me and my brother, right. you know, right above me. And that was a very trying time because I was a very um, capable individual as a young man. You right. know, I didn't ask for much, but I found a way to get it. Right. Okay. My brother, until this day, he was a very emotional child. Mm -hmm. You know, very sullen. I can, you know, and mm -hmm. quick to get excited yeah okay. so it was just he and I okay. and um, my brother he was into sports and his little friends and mm -hmm. uh, the typical things that youngsters do he was excited about having a girlfriend and all that this stuff mm -hmm. you know I mm -hmm. was combing alleys and seeing if the back door to the store would open and stuff right, like that you right, know right trying to take some pressure off my mother right you know but right. Uh, Yep. So, and then after the, the situation with my father, I wind up being segregated um, in juvenile because, like I said, I was upset. And uh, the school that I was at, uh, this woman's son went to that school. Okay. Yeah. Oh, you know, okay. So that didn't work out well. That didn't work out And it was no fault of their own. They were right, children right. just like I was. Just that, you know, uh, dealing with rejection. Dealing with rejection and the fact that, you know, I look back on it and, you know, maybe he just, he didn't know no better. He didn't mm -hmm. know. You don't know right. what you don't know. Right. You know? Right. Do you think that uh, kind of like enhanced your anger or frustration? It definitely did. Definitely it did. It definitely did. I had choices, but I didn't have anyone. The people that were in my life, Okay, because my mother still worked in Chicago, mm -hmm. and we were over here in Indiana now, you know, mm -hmm. so I was going to finish high school, or trying to finish high school over here, uh, going into high school. And um, so everybody that was my extended family was authority. The only time I came in contact with them is when they was coming to check me, so to speak, okay. correct me. Right. So I didn't have a relationship with them other right. than them coming to, to deal with me. To bark at you. Yeah, yeah. and so, you know, that, that didn't work out well, and it just right. further alienated me. Like so many youngsters, they didn't talk to me. Right. No one, you know, was curious about what was really going on, you right. know? Right. And so one thing led to another, and I hung out with an older set of individuals. Mm -hmm. And then drugs became, yeah. you know, a friend as well. Right, right, yeah, at 15. Right. Okay, so from the time that you saw your father with his new family and uh, the the fallout that came of that, how soon after that to you entering into the criminal justice system with your that case that you that gave you so much time? Well, I had been sentenced um, to the juvenile justice system, but when I got there, their security was like so. I just left, you know. Um, at the Indiana Boys School. And so when I got came back and I was on the run, that's when I was arrested for a series of events. Mm -hmm. um, and I was waved over, yeah, at that time. And 
that I stayed in jail, like I said, I was able to get out. And that case resulted, the feds, federal case was dismissed, and that case resulted because my co-defendant was sent, sent to prison. He was two years older than me. Okay. He said they sent him to Michigan City. And when I went to trial, I had a hung jury. Okay. And they didn't charge me. And it, I mean, they didn't retry me. And so um, I didn't process that well. Okay. You know, I thought, like, what's the guy in New York, the Gotti guy? Teflon Don. Yeah. Yeah, got I it. I got that on a, on, a, on a micro level. I thought, well, who? You know, I'm that guy. You know? And so it was, uh, right. it was right. only, man. I did it once. I could do it again. I thought, well, I'm smarter than them. Yeah. You know, but, yeah, I got out, man. And I, I was out for a period of time, but I went right back to using drugs. Mm -hmm. You know, I was an intravenous drug user at the age of 15. You know, with with, with heroin wow. and galatas and stuff like that. So that was part of my issue. Wow. You know, and so when I got out of jail, um, I um, it wasn't long, man, because I, you know, change is hard, and I was most comfortable with the with the people and in, in that environment because I knew it well. Yeah. You know, and yeah. so I picked up back up where I left off, and um, it was you know, led to me being arrested again for a series of events. Uh, and that's when I was sentenced to, you know, as a result of those events. Said. Yeah, I went. And it was at that time, I remember I was down at the RDC in Plainfield, you know, and um, I was listening to, you know, nighttime, these guys on, on, on the deck, they telling their stories about this, that, and the other. And I could close my eyes. I said, wow, you know, if I wasn't me, I would think they was talking about me. Mm -hmm. You know, because the stories are so similar. So similar. So similar. And so when I got to prison, you know, I started um, just, you know, paying attention and listening. And I got to prison in, in 1978. Okay. So there was a lot of people still in prison from the late 60s and the early 70s who, mm -hmm. were, who were politicized and, and even political prisoners as a direct result. Or they were political prisoners who had served this country in the war and had been subjected to, to all kinds of um, treatment and, and, you know, and stuff, experiments and stuff. And as a result, they were just released back to their community, broken, and many of them ended up in prison. Right. And so for me, that's a political prisoner because the political process of being sent off to war and used right. as, a, as, as a weapon and used as a tactic and used as a pawn right. and being turned back on your community, Ill, Ill, the community is ill-prepared, you're ill-prepared, ill-prepared. Right. And so, you know, the contradictions manifest themselves, so, so now you're in prison. Right. And so I came in in, in in that era, and so... I talked a little bit different there because I was, you know, wasn't far removed from Chicago. I was, yeah, yeah, look here, man, you know, this and that there. Mm -hmm. But my perception was good. And I listened. That's interesting. I like to learn. Right. And so I would sit at, at, at the feet of these guys when they would be talking and they would be educated. I got introduced to France Fanon. I got introduced to Marx. I found out about dialectical materialism. I started looking at European history, you know, and, and this and that there. I was in all these others, you know. And so I said, wow. And that opened me up to a whole new perspective. Exactly. And so I was still me. Right. But, and that meant that, you know, 
I was skirting the rules and stuff because I had things I had to do. If you had a book, I was trying to get to their book, the fact that, you know, you don't have a pass to go overseas sales. I'm going anyway, I got to go get this book. Mm -hmm. So, you know, bumping heads with staff. But the political education process had begun. Special thanks to Jock and Baye. We'll have more of this conversation in our upcoming episodes. Thank you to IDOC Watch and Focus Initiatives. We'll have links to their organizations and other information on our website. This has been KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. After a brief hiatus, we're happy to report that our prisoner call-in phone line is back. Folks on the inside or their outside friends and supporters can call 765-343-6236 to record a message to be played on the air. Please share this number widely and we'll try to answer and air all messages possible. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.